and Gigi were like totally live. What's up, you guys? And happy Friday the 13th. Ha, 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 ha. So because it's Friday the 13th, I wanted to try something different. We're even using a different sound. Maybe, I don't know if you can tell, maybe not. But for every Friday the 13th, we will be doing a true crime episode. So my background is in criminal justice as well as psychology with a concentration in forensic science. I've always been interested in crimes, detective work. I think because there were two immensely major crimes that went on in my immensely younger years that contributed to that. So I was about six years old when the whole JonBenet Ramsey situation happened. And then there was a situation with a boy named Joe Barefoot in South Carolina that happened. And I was legit in the middle of that whole situation. And I think that along with just having so many lawyers and police officers in my family, like it was just natural for me to get interested in criminal justice. So because I asked what you guys wanted to hear on the podcast, and so many of you did say that you wanted to hear um, true crime, I thought Friday the 13th would be the perfect time to do so. So for this Friday the 13th, I picked um, the Cassie Joe Stuttered case. And it might be a case that's overdone. You've probably heard it on various other podcasts, but I wanted to talk about it on mine. And the reason why is because it's about the slaying of a 16-year-old girl. And it happened in 2006. The girl and I were the same age. And I don't remember hearing about this story at that time. I actually ended up hearing about the story much later in my adult life. But This story just really hit home for me, and it made me really feel a certain type of way in my feelings, I guess you could say, because it was one of those situations where it was like, wow, that could have really happened to me. So let's just get right into the story of Cassie Jo Stuttered. So Cassie Jo Stuttered was just like your typical average teenage girl, and something that most teenage girls want is a car. So instead of her parents buying her a car, they said that she had to earn up at least a portion of the money to go towards it. So Cassie did all kinds of things to save up all that money. Her aunt and uncle offered her the opportunity to earn some money to house sit for them over the weekend because they were going away. And they offered to pay her and it could go towards her house. Obviously, she jumped on that. Who wouldn't, right? So two of her classmates named Brian Draper and Tori Adamick were plotting to become famous serial killers while Cassie was plotting to buy her first car. They found out that Cassie would be house-sitting alone by chance and she would become, unfortunately, their first victim, but fortunately, their last. Brian and Tori met in high school and they bonded over their shared love of horror movies. However, at some point, the hobby became a lethal obsession. Brian and Tori wanted to be the very villains they'd watched on television. One was said to have been inspired by the Columbine killers and the other by the Scream movies. Upon finding out about Cassie's availability, they began videotaping 
their documentary for her murder. And that's something that completely blows my mind. Like, not only did you have the audacity to think, hey, I'm going to take random people's lives for really no good reason, but you have the audacity to really sit down with a camera and, and talk this out. Like, wow. Okay, let's keep going. They would say hi to her in school and then sit in an empty classroom and discuss how naive she was for not realizing she was about to die. Isn't that terrible? Oh my goodness. Okay. The night of the murder, which occurred on September 22nd, 2006, Cassie invited her boyfriend over to keep her company and her boyfriend in turn invited Brian and Tori. Brian and Tori asked for a tour of the house, and that was when they began their deadly plan. When the tour made its way to the basement, they unlocked the basement door when Cassie and her boyfriend wasn't looking. Once the tour was over, they went back to the living room to watch a movie. Brian and Tori claimed that they were bored and was going to go to a local theater to see a movie. They left, but they never went to go see that movie. Instead, they went to their car and got masks, weapons, and re-entered the house through the basement door that they had unlocked previously. They began by messing with the breaker, turning the lights off, wanting to truly set an ambiance for a scream horror movie. Naturally, this freaked Cassie and her boyfriend out, but by the time the lights came back on, her boyfriend had to leave. He asked his mom if he could stay because Cassie was so freaked out, and the mom said no. Now... We'll get back to this more in detail. I kind of just want to go over all the details and logistics, but just think about that. Just think about that for a second. The lights went out. She's freaked out. He wants to stay. And his mom says no. We'll get back to that. Her boyfriend, Matt, begged her to let him stay, and the mom refused. The lights came back on, and Matt left. When Matt left, it all began all over again. They turned the lights off and made their way upstairs as Cassie didn't fall bait to their trap and go downstairs. They chased Cassie around the house before tackling her to the ground and stabbing her to death. They stabbed her around 30 times, but of those 30 times, about 12 or so were actually fatal. Once the murder was over, they ran back to their car, got out their camera, and began to videotape how they felt and what happened. What it was like to kill her and to see her life slip away. They drove off and buried all evidence, the mask, knife, and tapes in the woods. That Sunday, Cassie's aunt, uncle, and her 13-year-old cousin came home. Her 13-year-old cousin entered the home first to find Cassie's lifeless body lying on the carpet in the living room. You guys, when I tell you this case, it just, it hits home. It's so terrible because just think about it. You're 16 years old. Your number one priority in life is honestly your boyfriend, your schoolwork, and getting a car. That's like all you really have to worry about at that point. They were juniors in high school. You know, she didn't have a lot to worry about. And it made me think when I first heard this story about how many times I was in school just living my best 16-year-old life, 
completely unaware of what other people were thinking or doing. And that is a terrifying thought. It truly honestly is. And ever since I heard this case, it always just stuck with me because it was like, that could have been me. Like I could have been just going through my everyday routine and a classmate that I wasn't aware was watching me, watching my every move, following my pattern and plotting how they would murder me. And I don't know, like there's just something about how realistic that is and how possible it is that really stuck with me when I heard the story. Now, what I gave you was just a really quick brief overview of everything, but I really want to go back to, because there's some things in this story that I thought were a little bit weird. And if you guys know the answers to these things or anything like that, please feel free to reach out to me. All my social medias are OMGG underscore 1989. And let me know your thoughts as well as any additional additional information you guys know about this case. So something else that really stuck out to me that I would like to go back and talk about is the mom. You know, you have this situation where your son's girlfriend is house sitting and is home alone, unattended, and your son asks to spend the night. And I get it, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can I can see why she would say no because she might have very well just been thinking that he was trying to get over and she thought that by forcing him to go with her he would be saving her saving him her son that is from making a mistake like 16 and pregnant kind of a deal. Now I don't know if that's really what the mom was thinking, but I I would assume that's what she was thinking. And I'm thinking about it like that's what she's thinking. She's honestly just thinking that her son is trying to get over and pull a fast one. And then to find out that this girl was murdered and that it could have potentially been prevented if she was able to stay. I can't imagine how that woman feels. There has to be a certain level of guilt that she feels or that she has to deal with on a regular basis because she said no. But at the same exact time, there might be a certain level of relief that she has because she said no. Because it's like, while it's unfortunate what happened to Cassie, my son is still alive. You know what I'm saying? It's so interesting. And that's something else that I think about whenever I hear this story. Because, you know, the story has been covered um, on like those murder mystery shows and it's considered to be the scream killing because they wore scream masks and that's something else I want to talk about you guys imagine they put on masks not just any masks but screen masks from the movie scream and chase this girl around a dark house at night I can't imagine how terrified she must have been Like, could you imagine that? You know, you're living your best life. You're just house-sitting for your aunt and your uncle to raise up money to buy a car. And all of a sudden, your lights are going off. You're home alone. And two scream-mask-wearing individuals 
just appear out of nowhere and start chasing you through your house. I can't imagine what that would be like. I feel like I would be terrified because just the thought of that possibly happening terrifies me, like honestly. And, you know, I think about that when I hear this story. And I think about that when I watched the documentary of that case. Like, not only did you brutally murder this girl, brutally murdered her, because in the video documentary that they thought was a brilliant idea to do after the murdering, one of them says, I stabbed her in her throat and watched her body slip away, like watch her life slip away from her body. So you terrify this child by running through the building, running through the house and chasing her, playing cat and mouse until you get tired of that. And then you admit that you stabbed her in the throat. It was like, oh, we've had our fun. Now it's time for you to go. And in that video documentary, they talked about how good it felt. One person even said that they were getting horny thinking about how they murdered her. That is disgusting. It is utterly disgusting. That's something that bothered me. Also, the girl was murdered on a Friday. She wasn't discovered until Sunday morning. No one checked on her? No one. Not a living soul. Not one person called to check on this girl. She's home alone. She's house-sitting. No one checked on her? Like, I don't understand. Because I know that if I was house-sitting, my mom would be calling me every second of every day. In fact, let's be real. At 16, my mom was not the kind of parent that would let me house-sit so far away from her. She would have to house-sit with me as well. And honestly, I was a bit of a chicken when I was 16, so I don't think I would willingly house-sit by myself anyway. But that is also something that I thought about, you know, like how come no one checked on this girl? How come no one called her? And if they did call her or if they did text her and if they did try to reach her and she never picked up the phone, why didn't anyone go to the house to check on her? The girl was dead for over 24 hours before she was discovered. It makes no sense. She was a child. 16 or not, she was a child. And no one checked on her? Like, that I always found to be immensely interesting. Like, what do you guys think? Like, did that make any sense to you guys either? I don't know. Let me know. You guys know how to reach me. Let me know. So now let's move forward to um, trying to find the killers and who did it. So naturally, the boyfriend is the first suspect because the spouse or the significant other is always the first subject to be questioned in these kind of cases. And it makes sense because they're usually the last person to see them alive or they're usually one that might have some sort of motive, you know. So the detective said that when they interviewed the boyfriend, he was so devastated and so heartbroken and so full of remorse because he felt like it was her fault that she had died because he didn't stay. The cops knew automatically he had nothing to do with it. The cops said, in all my years of being a detective... You know, you know when somebody truly did not do something and that boy truly did not do anything. 
We tried to get him to calm down because he was so irate. And all he kept saying was that he was sorry because he felt like it was his fault because he felt like he should have just fought his mother and stayed anyway. And he didn't. And he felt like if he had done that, he could have saved her. Now, we don't know if that's true or not, because we don't know the girl's fate, what her destiny was. But going back to that, I can't imagine how he felt. He knew something wasn't right. He knew she was scared and he felt that it was his duty to protect her as her boyfriend. And he didn't do that. So the cops knew automatically that it was not him. They find out that Brian and Tori were also there. They bring them in for questioning. They both said, well, we were told that there was going to be a party, but like when we got there, nobody was there. So we went to go to the movies, but neither one of them could tell them what movie they went to go see. And mind you, this was only two days after her body was discovered. So it was really five days from the time they should have seen the movie, right? So they're saying, oh, I don't know. I don't remember what the movie is. And then eventually one caves and one leads the police to the woods where everything is. The murder weapons, the masks, the tape. And the detective said that when he saw that tape, he was terrified because he thought that these boys had actually videotaped the murder. And he said that he held the tape in his hand and everybody went into the room in the station and they just kept looking at that tape. They did not want to put it in the VCR, and they really had to mentally prepare themselves because they knew that this tape was going to help solve this young girl's murder, and they owed it to her to solve this case. And he said he took a deep breath, and he put the tape in, and they saw, they saw them go up to Cassie and say, hi, Cassie, and she said hello, And then it cut to them being in the classroom with the door cracked and them laughing, talking about how Columbine was so awesome and how it shouldn't be illegal to kill anyone and how they were just going to be so famous and no one's ever going to catch them. And then they zoom in on Cassie through a crack in the door. And it's like, this is some real morbid ish, man. Like this is, they really like sat there and plotted this out. So they're finally convicted. And of course, the kid who caved, their parents were trying to say, oh, well, he, you know, he even said, well, he pressured me to do it. I didn't want to do it. He coerced me to do it. And of course, the parents are feeding into that. Yeah, he coerced him. But the video proved wrong because they both talked about how excited they were for killing that girl and how excited they felt and how they couldn't wait to do it again. So... It failed. So now they both get jail time and they get the maximum sentence of life. 30 years to life without possibility of parole. But then you fast forward to 2012 and there was a case that deemed it unconstitutional to give children life sentences, including in the case of murder because their brains aren't developed enough. Now listen, I have a whole master's in psychology, and not just any psychology, but a concentration in forensic psychology. And in a case like that, because of course now because of that case, they're trying to get their cases overturned so that way they don't have to serve life in prison. They're now 30. Well, actually, they're now 29. They'll be 30 next year, both of the killers. 
But being that I hold a title of a master's in psychology, I don't agree with that. I do not believe that their case should be overturned. I think they deserve the death penalty because you stalked that girl and she was just unfortunately a prime suspect for them and put in a situation where it was nothing but space and opportunity for them. But you stalked that girl. You wanted to kill something, even if she wasn't. And they even said in the video, oops, sorry, Cassie, I guess it's going to be you. Like, it wasn't anything personal by picking her. Again, they picked her because it was space and opportunity. But you guys, like, you video documented these things. You blatantly said that you wanted to be a serial killer. You blatantly said that this case was going to put you on the map and it was going to give you notoriety, notoriety. I'm sorry, notoriety. What is that? Notoriety. And I think it was um, Idaho where this happened. Idaho or Ohio. One of those kind of like merp states. And I just... I can't believe that. And then you go as far as to the minute you murder that girl, you get in your car and the first thing you do is pull out a tape and you talk about how exciting it made you feel. Listen, I get it. I'm a teacher. I'm a preschool teacher. And I preach to parents all day long about child development and brain development and how children are you know, supposed to be at a certain place, technically by a certain time or around a certain time, um, because their brains, you know, develop at a certain time and place. But you are not going to tell me that at 16 years old, they did not know right from wrong. You're not going to tell me that because they did. Now, Giving a, a, a juvenile or an adolescent life in prison for something such as robbery or grand larceny or grand theft auto, okay, fine. You know, you can talk about that. You can talk about overturning it because, you know, when they're stealing, yes, technically they're not thinking about, you know, what's going to happen if they were to steal anything or anything like that. But then you have these teenage boys sitting here saying blatantly that this was what they intended on doing and that they intended on doing it to more people. No, we're not going to use child development as an excuse. A child steals a car. They're thinking, oh, I just want a joyride. They're not thinking, oh, I'm going to get caught. I will give you some sort of leadway with that. But a child sits down and plots a murder. And then laughs about it, laughs about the outcome, laughs about what ends up happening to that person, saying that they want to do it again, saying that they want that person to feel that pain and to do all of that again. No, mm -mm, that's premeditated. And you're not going to tell me that at 16 years old, they didn't know any better. And I'm incredibly passionate about that. Like 110% am I passionate about that because it's not okay. It's not okay. And that girl lost her life for what? For no reason. And could the the two boys that did it be mentally ill? Absolutely. Could they need some sort of help? Absolutely. But you know who needed help? Ted Bundy. You know who else needed help? The Green River Killer. 
You know who else needed help? JonBenet Ramsey's brother. There are plenty of people out there who have committed heinous crimes and have killed people. And yes, there was something mentally wrong with them. But that does not mean that because there's something mentally wrong with someone, they should get away with murder. Especially premeditated murder. Because that's what it was. It was completely premeditated. They plotted that. Like, I don't think I'll ever get over that, you guys. Like, they really sat there and plotted how they were going to kill this girl and what they were going to do to her and then were satisfied with their work. I want you to think about that. So that's my first ever true crime. I would love to know you guys' thoughts and opinions on that case. Have you heard of it before? Was this your first time hearing of Cassie Jo Stuttered? What did you think? What do you know about the case? Did I miss anything? Let me know. Did I even do this true crime thing right? Like, I don't know if I did it right, but this is how I did it and this is how I like to do it. Like, so all right. So that is all for today, you guys. I will be seeing you next week, same time, every Friday, wherever you listen to me. And I'll talk to you soon. Loves and likes ya. Bye. Good talk. See you next week.